Good morning, brothers and sisters. Uh, if you would please open your Bible uh, to Zechariah uh, chapter 13. Zechariah chapter 13, we are uh, slowly coming to an end uh, to our this series through this beautiful book and uh, the final two chapters uh, this week and the next couple of weeks. Uh, praise God for all that we have learned. Uh, Zechariah chapter 13 this morning. The year was 1763 and a brilliant young lawyer in England was going to be interviewed for a prestigious position as a clerk in the British Parliament. This young man uh, had had a fine education and on the outside he seemed polished, intelligent, determined. But on the inside he was struggling. You see, he had lost his mother when he was six years old, and the experience of his mother's death at that young age left him a very emotionally fragile person all through his life, suffered with numerous bouts of deep depression. Yet he kept himself busy and distracted, you know, with his law career. He was having great success advancing in his career. But as he was getting ready, for this new position, this prestigious position in Parliament, instead of feeling excitement, he began feeling great fear and panic. He had a panic attack and a complete emotional and mental breakdown. He tried unsuccessfully to take his own life three times, after which he was committed to a mental asylum for 18 months. And after about six months in this asylum, this young man in his 30s began reading the Bible. And he found the passage, John 11, where Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead and he, was, he says he was struck by Jesus' benevolence, his kindness, his gentleness and grace and his power. But he said, I didn't think his power could reach me. But yet in God's great grace, a few months later, he kept reading and he came to Romans chapter 3 where it says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation in his blood to be received by faith. And this young man reading these words, he says, Immediately I received the strength to believe it. And the full beams of the Son of Righteousness shone upon me. I saw the sufficiency of the atonement he had made, my pardon sealed in his blood, and all the fullness and completeness of his justification. In a moment I believed and received the gospel. And this young man who came to faith in Christ in the mental asylum. His name was William Cooper. He went on to become one of the most famous poets and hymn writers of that time. And together with his mentor, whom you might have heard of, named John Newton, they composed and wrote together over 300 hymns, which were collected in a book called the Olney Hymns. Cooper himself contributed 68 of those hymns, one of which we sang this morning. There is a fountain filled with blood. And that hymn that William Cooper wrote 
was based on our text today, Zechariah chapter 13. What is it that gives fear-filled, depressed, suicidal persons like William Cooper the ability to sing and to write hymns that the church is still singing over 200 years later? What is it that creates that kind of hope? Brothers and sisters, it's what God has done in Christ that creates this hope. And this hope comes from truths that we find in passages like what we're going to see today, Zechariah chapter 13. And as we come to this text, brothers and sisters, we can find great comfort in our cleansing and we can grow in our zeal for the holiness and purity of God's people. We're going to look at Three results of what God has done in Christ, what God does for us through Jesus in Zechariah 13 that should bring us comfort and cause us to grow in our zeal for holiness. And we're going to spend the majority of our time on the first point, all right, in, in just one verse, verse one, because this is, this is kind of the main point of this passage. We'll spend the majority of our time there and then we'll go through the other two works that God is doing in his people. So we're looking at three results of what the Lord has done for us, his people. Number one, we are cleansed in God's fountain. We are cleansed in God's fountain. Verse one, on that day, there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. So you might remember the context in which Zechariah is writing. This was a people and a community who were broken by their own sin. They had faced judgment for their sin in the past through an exile. They were facing hindrances to restoration in the present because of their sin. And Zechariah, as the prophet, comes on the scene and he's calling them to look upward to God on his throne and to look forwards to a day when God would come and restore his people, that God himself would come and win the battle against his enemies, establish his kingdom and bring his people back to himself. And with that, there is the promise that God himself would purify his people from sin. How does God do it? Of course, we saw last week's passage in Zechariah 12, where there's a great victory in battle, but then the people look and see that their king himself, the Lord himself, God himself, has been pierced. God himself was pierced by his own people. And he was pierced for his people. And we saw how it's possible for God to be pierced. God was pierced in the person of Jesus Christ. God the Son, the King who is fully God and fully human, in and through his human nature, was pierced and died on the cross to save sinners. And we saw in Zechariah 12, God pour out he says, he pours out a spirit of grace so that the people look on him, look on Jesus whom they have pierced 
and they begin to mourn in repentance for their sin. The spirit of grace that God pours out leads to repentance and mourning. But you see, our mourning does not accomplish our cleansing. Our tears could flow forever and ever. And oh, I've seen so many people sob and weep over sin. And we could cry whole rivers of tears. But those tears don't wash away the stain on our hearts. The Bible commentator Barry Webb, and he has an excellent little volume, very easy to read on Zechariah. If you want to keep studying this book, I recommend that to you. It's called Thy Kingdom Come. And he beautifully talks about the transitions from Zechariah chapter 12 to Zechariah chapter 13. And he says the flood of tears in Zechariah 12 is now replaced by a fountain of cleansing. In Zechariah 12, we saw the whole land mourning over the pierced Savior and over their sin. Now we see the whole land being cleansed. We saw in Zechariah 12, God pouring out a spirit of mercy. Here, He is going to drive out the spirit of impurity. And the same people who pierced their Savior and King, who pierced God in Zechariah 12, those people have been transformed in Zechariah 13, will be transformed so that they pierce anyone who speaks falsely in God's name. And how does this transformation, how does all of this take place? It's by the fountain that the Lord has opened by being pierced. Look again verse 1. There shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Those are the same people from Zechariah 12 who were mourning at the end of the chapter. A fountain has been opened for them. These people are the beneficiaries of the fountain. And what does the fountain achieve? It cleanses them. What is the purpose of this fountain? To cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Now Zechariah being a prophet, he understood and knew the Old Testament well. And he knew that in the Old Testament, in God's plan, in the book of Leviticus, for instance, which we, Lord willing, will study later this year, that the only way to be cleansed from sin and uncleanness was through sacrificial offerings. And these offerings, these sacrifices, pointed forward to one day a greater and better sacrifice which would deal with sin and cleanse us from sin once and for all. And Zechariah here as he's speaking of this fountain, he's looking forward to a sacrifice that will come and cleanse us from sin. He knows that the Old Testament animal sacrifices are not enough. God himself must provide a sacrifice. God himself must open up a fountain that will deal with our sin. And friends, as we read the Bible, as we read the New Testament, we come to see that this sacrifice has been made. This fountain has been opened through our pierced Lord Jesus. The Apostle John, the eyewitness, one of the eyewitnesses to the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ in his gospel in John chapter 19, 
He, he tells us this and you can clearly see that John is thinking of Zechariah chapters 12 and 13 even as he writes these words. He's seeing the fulfillment of these things and relaying them to us. John chapter 19. One of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true. He knows that he is telling the truth so that you also may believe. And then again in verse 37 he says, again another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. As John the apostle saw Jesus being pierced and as he saw this fountain of blood and water being gushing out of Jesus' side, he realized that Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice who saves us from our sins. That his death on the cross, his blood is the fountain that God has opened for us to be cleansed from sin and saved from God's judgment. That's why John could later write, John later writes in 1 John chapter 1, he says the blood of his son Jesus cleanses us from all unrighteousness. That's a beautiful image, isn't it? A fountain, the image of a fountain used to describe the cleansing that God gives us. As one author says, the fountain shows us that this is overflowing. God's forgiveness and cleansing is overflowing, never failing, inexhaustible in its supply. The great Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon, he always has a way with words. He describes it this way, speaking on this passage, he says, There is a fountain opened, not a cistern nor a reservoir, but a fountain a fountain continues still to bubble up and is as full after 50 years as at the first. And even so, the provision and the mercy of God for the forgiveness and justification of our souls continually flows and overflows. There is a supply so large that when thousands of the sons of Adam come, they find that there is enough for their demands. And as new generations continue still to come all along the centuries, they shall find that the supply has not in any degree diminished. The fountain is never ending and continues to flow. Dear friends, oh what good news that is. What good news for sinners like you and me. Because if we are honest with ourselves, we know that there's nothing we can do to escape the stain of sin on our lives. Nothing we can do in and of ourselves. We're all sinners. We're all deeply, deeply flawed and stained. You know, I was talking with a, a friend a couple of weeks ago. We were having dinner and, and we were talking about the differences in our beliefs. And, and he, he said, he recognized this. He said, you know, you Christians, you believe that all of you are born sinners. You come into this world uh, sinful. We don't believe that. We believe that we are born neutral. And, and you know, we, we have some good in us. Morally neutral. And I said, my friend, have you, have you looked at the world around us? Just think about, look at history Consider the world that we live in. Consider the way that people behave. It, it doesn't, doesn't that show you that there's something wrong with us? Fundamentally wrong with human beings? And if we're honest with ourselves, and I pressed him on this, it's, it's not just when we look outside. We realize it when we look inside. Look at your life. Look at your heart. And you know that you are stained. That you are deeply polluted. 
that there is an uncleanness there. All of us come into this world unclean as sinners, constantly inclined towards sin. Not only are we unclean and sinful, but we are also guilty. We are guilty as can be. We stand condemned before our holy God and Creator, knowing that we deserve His judgment, knowing that we deserve to be punished for our sins. And, and maybe you live your life, maybe you're here and, and you're not a Christian. Maybe you're here and you claim to be a Christian, but you, 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 you try to hide from this fact. You know, you, we, we try to suppress that feeling of guilt. We, we try to suppress this fact and hide from it. But we cannot hide. As the song that we sing, dark is the stain that we cannot hide. What can avail to wash it away? We saw this back in Zechariah chapter 3. All of us are dirty. All of us are filthy. And we're guilty. But I have good news just as the song says. Look, there is flowing a crimson tide. Wider than snow you can be today. Friends, there is no sin too bad. There is no amount of sins that is too great. There is no stain too dark that the blood of Jesus cannot wash away. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And you ask, how can I be washed in this fountain? How can I be made pure? And the answer is simple. Repent of your sin and trust in Jesus. Look to the pierced one who poured out his blood, who died on the cross to save sinners like you and me. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Come to this fountain and be saved from judgment. Come to this fountain and be washed from sin's stain. Come to this fountain and be freed from sin's power. Maybe you're here this morning and you've never experienced the cleansing flow of this fountain. You've never been cleansed from your sin. Maybe you're here and you live in perpetual guilt or trying to hide from your guilt, trying to cover up your stain of sin. Maybe you're here, dear non-Christian friend, and you've never experienced the forgiveness of sins that is available in Jesus Christ. Or you're here and you call yourself a Christian and you read the Bible and you come to church, but you know deep down that you've not been made right with God. I want to tell you, dear non-Christian friend, I want to tell you, dear fake Christian friend, if that's what you are, there is a fountain that has been opened to cleanse us from sin and uncleanness. Be washed today. Trust in Jesus. Look at the pierced one and be saved. Maybe you're new in the faith. Maybe you've trusted in Jesus. You've experienced that great joy and fresh forgiveness of sins. And even as you've been baptized and you're taking your baby steps as a Christian and walking with the Lord, you're stumbling and falling and you're wondering like, oh, I, I thought I was freed from sin and I'm still stumbling, I'm still struggling with sin. Dear young Christian, there is a fountain that has been opened. It is overflowing, never-ending, and you can be cleansed. Maybe you're someone who's 
been walking with the Lord for years and years. And after all these years of walking with Jesus, you're still reminded of the defilement of this world that clings on to you, of the ways that you still fall short and stumble and, and fail every day. And you're thinking, oh my, you know, Lord, this sin that, that keeps clinging on to me, how can I be clean? How can I overcome? There is a fountain that has been opened. It's the same as 50 years ago as it is now. And you can be clean. And one day you will be clean, set free from sin completely forever. And you can still be clean today on your best days and on your worst days. When you've had a great day and when you've fallen and stumbled and messed up, there's a fountain that cleanses us from sin. Maybe your spiritual life has been in decline in this season or maybe you've been falling into some habitual sin. You've been struggling in this season of the pandemic, straying from God and you showed up today and you're hearing this word. Friend, there's a fountain that's been opened for you. Come and be cleansed. Children, I want to speak to you children. You know, no matter how young you are, you're not too young. I know this. You're not too young to have an awareness of your sin. I know even little kids. You have this sense of, of your sin, of your guilt before God. And you're wondering how you can be free and how you can be cleansed. Dear children, I want to speak to you. This fountain is for you. There's a fountain that's been opened that cleanses hearts, even little hearts from sin. And I appeal to you, dear children, look to Jesus. Put your faith in Jesus. Trust in Jesus today. I want to speak to us all. You can be washed. You can be cleansed. We become pure because of the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ shed for sinners. And this is our privilege as Christians. This is our privilege as a church to invite others to this fountain. There is no other way. There is no other way to be free from sin's penalty, to be free from sin's power. It's only by the blood of Jesus. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And we have the privilege to call and invite others to this fountain, to call sinners who are weary and heavy laden and doomed and lost in their sin, to call them and say, come to the fountain, this overflowing fountain, this never failing fountain, this fountain that purifies us from sin and saves us from judgment. And I want to say, not only does this fountain cleanse us as individuals, but God also cleanses His community. The effects of this fountain result in a purification of the entire community of God's people, the entire land. And we'll see those effects in the next verses. Because of the fountain opened through our Lord Jesus Christ, the pierced one, not only can we be cleansed, but we also become committed to God's name. So the first result of God's work in Christ is that we are cleansed in God's fountain. The second is we become committed to God's name. Look at verses 2 to 6. On that day declares the Lord of hosts, I will cut off the names of the idols from the land so that they shall be remembered no more. And also I will remove from the land the prophets and the spirit of uncleanness. And if anyone again prophesies, his father and mother who bore him will say to him, You shall not live, for you speak lies in the name of the Lord. And his father and mother who bore him shall pierce him through when he prophesies. On that day, 
Every prophet will be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies. He will not put on a hairy cloak in order to deceive, but he will say, I am no prophet, I am a worker of the soil, for a man sold me in my youth. And if one asks him, what are these wounds on your back? He will say, the wounds I received in the house of my friends. So here in these verses, we're seeing this second effect of God's fountain. Not only does it cleanse us individually, but it makes us a people who are committed to God's name, committed to holiness. God's fountain flows through and cleanses the entire community. And, and we've seen this before in the book of Zechariah. Remember Zechariah chapter 5. Th this book keeps bringing back the same promises with different images. And in Zechariah 5, you saw God's promise that he was going to remove sin from among his people. We saw that uh, vision of a lady whose name was Wickedness and, and she was put into the basket symbolizing wickedness and shipped away. FedEx, DHL, out of the land, out of the presence of the people of God. Sin is sent away. That's what we're seeing here. God is going to clean up his people. And it begins with the cutting off of the idols, verse 2. I will cut off the names of the idols from the land so that they shall be remembered no more. Not only are the idols removed, their very names are forgotten. We see you know, beautiful pictures, images of this kind of work that God does even in the New Testament, in the book of Acts. You might remember Acts chapter 19 where the Apostle Paul goes to a city called Ephesus. A city that was full of black magic and idolatry and superstition. And as Paul preached the gospel, people brought their uh, books of witchcraft and burned them. And then what happened? There was a riot. Why? Because the major trade and business of the city was now running bankrupt. The craftsman who made the idol says, nobody's buying our idols anymore. And it disrupted the idol trade as people turned to faith in Jesus Christ. You know, I visited Ephesus a couple of years ago, had the privilege of doing that with my family, and I, I remember the great temple uh, of the famous goddess of Ephesus, the temple of Artemis, also known as Diana, now just lying in ruins. Completely gone. I, I think of my home country of India, and I feel such great sorrow in my heart when I think of how every street corner and every place you go, there are idols of gold and silver and wood and stone that people bow down to and worship. And, and I have great confidence and joy in the promises of God that one day there will be innumerable Indians around the throne of God Almighty and the Lamb. And there will be no more idols named among them anymore. But brothers and sisters, biblically speaking, an idol is not just something made of gold or silver or wood or stone. See, the biblical definition of idolatry is much broader than that. An idol is anything. It need not be a physical thing. It's any belief or any love that draws your heart away from the living God and His truth. Anything that you rely upon more than you rely upon God Himself, that's an idol. 
And you can diagnose that in yourself this morning by asking yourself the question, what is that one thing that if I, I, I wish, if I just had this one thing, it, you know, everything would be okay. Beware. Even good things can become idols. Health, success, good job. All of these things can become idols if it displaces the Lord from first place in our lives. You see, the Lord will have no competitors for the affections and the hearts of those whom He has saved. He's promised to clean out the idols from His people, the things that will draw them away from Him. And one day He will. There will be no idols among the people of God anymore. But that day of cleaning out begins now. It begins now. And I want to say, brothers and sisters, dear friend, I don't know what you're idolizing right now in your life. I know for many in this season, comfort, safety has become an idol. Where it's begun to take priority over the Lord. Maybe it's a particular relationship that you're idolizing. Maybe it's job security. I don't know what your idol is. I don't know what the idols of our community are. But we need to examine our hearts and ask ourselves, what are the idols that I need to bring to the Lord this morning for Him to cut off so that they are remembered no more in our lives? Not only does the Lord cut off the idols, He also drives out the false prophets and the evil spirits. You see that again in verses 2 and 3. He says, I will remove from the land the prophets and the spirit of uncleanness. And these are closely related. Idolatry and false prophecy, false teaching, false prophets is closely related to one another. Right? Idolatry breeds false prophecy because the people want prophets who will tell them what they want to hear. And false prophecy breeds more idolatry, as one author says. This is why the health, wealth and prosperity Preachers, the false teachers of the health, wealth, prosperity, false gospel are so popular. Why are they popular? Because people are idolizing health, wealth and prosperity. And these false prophets give them what they want to hear and generate more idolatry of these things. Well, God says, I'm going to take it out. And you see also that false teaching, things that lead people's hearts away from God are actually demonic. Do you see that in the text? He drives out the false prophets and the evil spirits. You know, when we speak of evil spirits or of the work of demons and Satan, sometimes we tend to think of something very sensational, right? Something that's very obvious, that you can see very physically, but, but Satan's number one trick and the way that evil spirits operate the most is through falsehood and lies. What did, how did Satan operate in the garden? Through lying. To deceive. And behind every false teaching that draws people away from the truth of God, that draws people away from the living God to idolize other things, you can be sure this is the work of Satan himself and the powers of darkness. But God says, I'm going to drive it out. He works among His people to remove these things 
and he transforms his people so that they become so committed to God's name, to the sanctity of God's name. He works in his people, God works in his people so that they become so committed to his truth that they act swiftly to pierce anyone who speaks lies in the name of the Lord. They act swiftly to punish and cut out false teaching and false prophets. That's what we see in verse 3. That someone here is prophesying falsely and his own father and mother who bore him say to him, You shall not live, for you speak lies in the name of the Lord. And his father and mother who bore him shall pierce him through when he prophesies. You know, when Zechariah is speaking of that, he is speaking of a command that was already given in God's law for his covenant people back in Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy chapter 13, verses 6 to 9, God spoke to his people and said, If your brother, the son of your mother, or your son or your daughter, or your wife you embrace, or your friend who is as your own soul, entices you secretly, saying, Let us go and serve other gods, which neither you nor your fathers have known. Look at verse 8. You shall not yield to him or listen to him, nor shall your eye pity him, nor shall you spare him, nor shall you conceal him. You shall kill him. Your hand shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all people. In the old covenant among Israel, God pronounced the death sentence against anyone who spoke falsely in his name and brought false teaching, false prophecy, led people towards idols. And this death sentence was to be executed even if that was someone in your, your own family, someone who was dear to you. We don't see this executed anywhere else in the Old Testament. Probably people didn't have that zeal for God. But we see it here in Zechariah 13. That the fountain of God's cleansing has transformed the people so much that they are marked by this commitment and zeal for truth and for purity and for holiness. And someone teaching falsely, preaching false uh, prophecies, his own father and mother pierce him. The people who pierced God himself in the previous chapter have now been transformed that they pierce anyone who speaks falsely in his name. And that speaks to a commitment to God's name. Now in the old covenant, they practiced capital punishment and execution in these ways. And you might think that that's harsh but the only reason you might think that that's harsh is that you don't recognize how holy, how sanctified God's name is. And you don't realize how serious and how deadly it is to bring false falsehoods among his people. In the new covenant, we no longer practice capital punishment. Things have changed. God gives us something far more serious to do as his people. He wants us as a church to be marked by a commitment to his name and by a zeal for purity and holiness among us. And this zeal and holiness begins now through the practice of church discipline. Brothers and sisters, church discipline is a clear teaching of the New Testament. We saw it in passages like we read today, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. If someone is continuing in sin unrepentantly, if someone is bringing false teaching the church is supposed to act to guard our purity, to guard our holiness. When, when the world looks at Christians, they, they form a certain opinion about Jesus. And we are supposed to guard the holiness of Jesus' name, 
his reputation in this world. And that means as a church, we are supposed to act if someone is calling themselves a Christian, but living in a way that distorts biblical truth, then we must act to put them out of the church, the Bible says. We are supposed to guard one another from sin. We are supposed to guard the purity of the church, of the body of Christ. And you know, in this season, it's been really difficult. We've been for months and months now, over a year, not able to meet as members outside any other meeting than this worship service. We're on Zoom and, and our elders are wrestling through this uh, situation. There are multiple uh, people, members of ECC, who have fallen into deep and serious unrepentant sin, who are not responding to calls and encouragements to repent. And as the church, we would have to act. So please pray for us as elders as we think through how to lead ECC through acting for the purity of the church, even in this difficult subnormal season. But you see, it's not just leaders who are responsible to guard the church's purity. It's not just elders. It's ordinary Christians. Right? In this passage, who are the people who are acting to pierce the guy who's preaching falsely? It's an ordinary Israelite, his own father and mother. Friends, brothers and sisters, you are responsible for guarding the purity of the church, for guarding one another from sin, for guarding the doctrine of this church. God gives you that responsibility. You are responsible for the purity of the people of God. You are responsible to pray that ECC will have no unrepentant sin in our midst. You are responsible to act when you see someone caught in sin to pursue those who are straying from God. You are responsible to guard the doctrine of this church. If I come up here or if anyone else came here and is preaching false doctrine or teaching something unbiblical and false, you should fire me. You are responsible. All right, God gives us that responsibility. For ordinary Christians, we are to take a stand. And, and there's no middle way. All right, and we, we've got to be careful and, and, and responsible with this even at large. You know, there's all of the calls in, in every, every place that you go, especially among evangelicals, this is common, right? We want church unity. We want unity with other churches, unity with other ministries, uh, unity among all Christians everywhere. And, and there's a lot of calls for church unity. And that's a beautiful thing. Church unity and unity with other Christians and other churches and other ministries is beautiful and to be valued and cherished, but not at the expense of of the gospel and of truth. There is always this pressure in the name of Christian unity to tolerate false teaching and to welcome those who bring a different gospel or who have departed from the faith. God doesn't give us that option. All right, We cannot tolerate those things. And this, this text leaves us with two options. Either you stand with those who pierce God or you can stand with those who pierced those who bring false teaching in the name of God. And God himself works to unmask and expose false prophecy, false teachings. You see that in verses 4 to 6. In, in, this, in these verses you see this guy who is I don't think he's repentant. He is exposed, unmasked for who he is. 
He's been prophesying, claiming to speak in God's name, but now he's going to be put to shame for his vision. You know, they, they were wearing on these hairy cloaks to deceive people. Elijah used to wear this hairy cloak. And, and now uh, these false prophets, they, he's just a farmer, he's just a worker of the soil, but he started wearing on this hairy cloak and going about and prophesying teachings in the Lord's name. Why? To make money probably. And leading people astray. And this passage says he's going to expose them. God will expose them. And they ask him, verse 6, what are these wounds on your back? He's exposed as an immoral and wicked man. He says, these wounds I received in the house of my friends. The, the word translated my friends, 15 times the same word in Hebrew, in the Hebrew Old Testament. Every other instance, it refers to his, uh, his uh, lovers. So this guy was probably some kind of a prostitute who was going about and deceiving people, leading them astray from God. There's, there's an amazing documentary called Marjo, made in 1972, about this man in America who became a very famous evangelist and healer. He was ordained as a child evangelist and he went about with huge crowds, you know, preaching, teaching, healing. Uh, and then one day he got sick of all the fraud that he was doing. And he decided to make a documentary. So he brought a film crew behind the scenes with him. And he shows, showing them all the tricks that he used to deceive people. Where he puts uh, some chemical substance on his forehead in the shape of a cross. So that that, that particular chemical when it mixes with human sweat turns red. And so while he's preaching, you know, it, it becomes red. And the people say, oh, the cross in, in blood on his forehead. And, and then there's video of him in his hotel room counting all the money and singing. And you know, thinking of how he deceived people. Recently, Kosti Hinn, the nephew of Benny Hinn, has written a complete uh, expose. He, he came to faith in Christ and he's written a behind-the-scenes look at all that's happened, all the fraud, fraudulent things that happens through Benny Hinn's ministry. Friends, beware of false prophets who deceive. But this passage is not just giving us a warning. No, it's giving us a promise. This is filled with promise. It's, it's a promise for me as a pastor. You see, nothing is more heartbreaking to pastors, to shepherds, when you see people led astray by false teaching or falling into idolatry. But here God is promising that one day, all will be cleansed. There will be no more threat of false teachers and false prophets. There will be no more idols that wedge their way into the hearts of the people of God. God's people will be completely cleansed but that's still not the ultimate goal being cleansed and free from idols and falsehood is not the ultimate goal no the ultimate goal is being reunited with God himself remember the main theme of Zechariah right from the beginning chapter 1 return to me says the Lord and I will return to you and the question is, how does this return become possible? How does this fountain get opened? And of course, Zechariah brings us back to the pierced one. And we learn how God accomplishes his cleansing. The people pierced their king, God himself. Chapter 12. The sheep rejected the good shepherd. Chapter 11. But now we learn something significant. That this was not just the action of the people but the plan of God himself. And we'll see that in verse 7. It's God himself 
acts in judgment in such a way as to bring his people back to himself. That's the third and final result of God's work in this passage. First, we are cleansed by God's fountain. Second, we become committed to God's name. And third, we are covenanted as God's people. We are covenanted as God's people. Verses 7 to 9. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish and one-third shall be left alive. And I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refined silver and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people and they will say, the Lord is my God. God will purify his people. God will establish his kingdom And he returns to dwell with us again. That's what verse 9 is saying. We become his covenant people. And what is it that makes it possible? Is verse 7. In verse 7, God raises a sword. And God himself uses this sword to strike his own shepherd. Not a bad shepherd, but the good shepherd. He says, awake a sword against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me. This one who is standing next to God, who is closely, intimately associated with God himself. Who could it be that stands next to God? Only one person can stand next to God and that person must be God himself. And again we come to the mystery of the Trinity That God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit from eternity have planned our salvation. Because this one who is struck by the sword is our Lord Jesus Christ himself. At the cross, God in Christ was bearing the sword blow, the penalty for sinners. You see, Jesus quotes this same passage in Matthew 26. As he's preparing to go to the cross, Jesus said to them, You will fall away. Because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Jesus is God's shepherd, struck for the sheep. The cross is God's plan. God orchestrates it. God executes it as his plan to save sinners from his own holy wrath and justice. As Pastor Wiley likes to say, at the cross, God saves us from God. And this truth is a very important doctrine in the Christian faith. It's called penal substitutionary atonement. We see that God is holy, that we are sinners who have sinned against him and deserve his justice and punishment, righteous punishment for our sins. But God has acted in and through His Son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross as a substitute for sinners, taking the sword blow upon Himself, being struck as the shepherd for the sheep, so that by repenting and trusting in Him, we have forgiveness and freedom. You see that in the text. Verse 9, There is a third who are left alive, who are rescued from judgment, 
a purified group whom God saves and preserves from judgment. And these people shall live in covenant relationship with God. That's, that's the meaning of this verse, this language. They are my people and they will say, the Lord is my God. That's the language used throughout the Old Testament to describe a close covenant relationship with God. Friends, that covenant has been inaugurated by our Lord Jesus Christ. And the cleansing that we receive in His fountain will lead to a refining that we must have in His fire to be purified. Did you see that in verse 9? I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refines silver and test them as gold is tested. That means that suffering is a part of our purification and part of our covenant relationship with our God. As one author says, holiness in biblical terms is not just about being forgiven, it's also about transformation. We need the furnace as well as the fountain if we are to be as God wants us to be. That is why suffering should not cause us to lose heart or to feel that God has somehow abandoned us. It is a vital and precious part of His way with us. Dear brothers and sisters, I know that the past year has been hard. That many of you have suffered in this past year more than you've suffered in your entire life. This has been the hardest year of my life. It's been the greatest year of suffering in my short life and I know the same is true for many of you. You must not think in these times, oh, if I just, you know, if we just get through this suffering and then there'll be glory and peace with God. As one pastor said, it's the suffering that prepares you for glory. God is working through our suffering. We are His covenant people. And William Cooper wrote another beautiful hymn where he sings this. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the fountain of your Son's blood that cleanses us from sin. Help us to endure suffering and be made a pure people for you. In Jesus' name, amen.